continue this week's journey where we are talking about some interesting books on India. And today the book that I've got with me is one of my personal favorites. If you are not familiar with India, if you have no idea about India and you want to pick one book, I would say go for this one. The name of this book is The Case for India and it was published in 1930 written by Will Durant, the famous historian. And although a lot has changed about India since then, back then when he wrote this book, India was still under British colonialism and was struggling to gain independence. It was much poorer country than it is today. Yet, when we talk about the perspectives, we talk about the history, the context in which we should see India, that pretty much remains the same. And I will give you some idea about it, what the author is trying to tell us, as I'm going to narrate a few passages from the book in today's podcast. So I'm going to pick a few passages from the first chapter itself and give you an idea about what India is. So, here we go. Let us remember, first, that India is not a little island, nor a continent sparsely inhabited by savages, but a vast territory containing 320 million souls, three times as many as in the United States, more than in the North and South America combined more than in all Europe, west of Russia combined. All in all, one-fifth of the world's population. Let us remember further that in the northern and more important half of India, the people are predominantly of the same race as the Greeks, the Romans and ourselves, that is, Indo-Europeans or Aryans that though their skin has been browned by the tireless sun, their features resemble ours and are in general more regular and refined than those of the average European. That India was the motherland of our race and Sanskrit the mother of Europe's languages. That she was the mother of our philosophy, mother through the Arabs of much of our mathematics mother through Buddha of the ideals embodied in Christianity, mother through the village community of self-government and democracy. Mother India is in many ways the mother of us all. Let us remember also, in order that we may see the problem in perspective, the age and variety of India's civilization. Recent excavations at Mohenjo-daro have revealed a civilization 3500 BC with great cities and industries, comfortable homes and luxuries ranging from bathrooms to statuary and jewelry, all betokening a social condition superior to that prevailing in contemporary Babylonia and Egypt. When Alexander the Great invaded India in 326 BC, 
his historian, recorded his amazement at finding on the Indus a people quite as civilized and artistic as the Greeks, who were then at the height of their curve. At no time in history has India been without civilization. From the days of Buddha in the 5th century, who is to the east what Christ is to the west, through the time when Ashoka, the most humane of emperors, preached the gentle creed of Buddha from pillars and monuments everywhere, down to the 16th century, when culture, wealth and art flourished at Vijayanagar in the south, and a still higher culture and still greater wealth and art flourished under Akbar in the north. It was to reach this India of fabulous riches that Columbus sailed the seas. The civilization that was destroyed by British guns had lasted for 15 centuries, producing saints from Buddha to Ramakrishna and Gandhi. Philosophy from the Vedas to Schopenhauer and Bergson, Thoreau and Kaiserling who take their lead and acknowledge their derivation from India. Poetry from the Mahabharata containing the Bhagavad Gita, perhaps the most beautiful work of the literature of the world. Down to Sarojini Naidu, greatest of living women poets, and Rabindranath Tagore, who, writing a local dialect in a subject land, has made himself the most famous poet of our time. And how shall we rank a civilization that created the unique and gigantic temples of Elora, Madura, Angkor and perfect artistry of Delhi, Agra and the Taj Mahal, that indescribable lyric in stone? This evidently was not a minor civilization produced by an inferior people. It ranks with the highest civilizations of history and some, like Kaiserling, would place it at the head and summit of all. When in 1803 the invading British sieged the fort at Agra and their cannon struck near the beautiful Khas Mahal or Hall of Private Audience, the Hindus surrendered at once, lest one of the most perfect creations of the human hand should be ruined. Who then were the civilized? The British conquest of India was the invasion and destruction of a high civilization by a trading company, utterly without scruple or principle, careless of art and greedy of gain, overrunning with fire, and sword a country temporarily disordered and helpless, bribing and murdering, annexing and stealing and beginning that career of illegal and legal plunder which has now gone on so ruthlessly for 173 years and goes on at this moment while in our secure comfort we write and read. When the British came, India was politically weak and economically prosperous. The Mughal dynasty, which had so stimulated art, science and literature in India, came to the 
usual fate of monarchies in 1658 when Shah Jahan, builder of the Taj Mahal, was succeeded by his fanatical son Aurangzeb. For almost 50 years, this puritanic emperor misgoverned India. When he died, his realm fell to pieces, and petty princes set up their rule in numberless divided and sovereign states. It was simple, a simple matter for a group of English buccaneers armed with the latest European artillery and morals to defeat the bows and arrows, the elephants and primitive musketry of the Rajas and bring one Hindu province after another under the control of the British East India Company. Those who have seen the unspeakable poverty and physiological weakness of the Hindus today will hardly believe that it was the wealth of 18th century India which attracted the commercial pirates of England and France. As Sunderland says, this wealth was created by the Hindus' vast and varied industries. Nearly every kind of manufacturers or product known to the civilized world, nearly every kind of creation of man's brain and hand existing anywhere and prized either for its utility or beauty had long, long been produced in India. India was a far greater industri industrial and manufacturing nation than any in Europe or any other in Asia. Her textile goods, the fine products of her looms in cotton, wool, linen and silk were famous all over the civilized world. So were her exquisite jewelry and her precious stones cut in every lovely form. So were her pottery, porcelain, ceramics of every kind, quality, color and beautiful shape. So were her fine works in metal, iron, steel, silver and gold. She had great architecture, equal in beauty to any in the world. She had great engineering works. She had great merchants, great businessmen, great bankers and financiers. Not only was she the greatest shipbuilding nation, but she had great commerce and trade by land and sea which extended to all known civilized countries. Such was the India which the British found when they came. So it was this wealth that the East India Company proposed to appropriate. Already in 1686, its directors declared their intention to establish a large, well-grounded, sure English dominion in India for all time to come. The company rented from the Hindu authorities trading posts at Madras, Calcutta and Bombay and fortified them without permission of the authorities with troops and cannon. In 1756, the Raja of Bengal, resenting this invasion, attacked the English fort William, captured it, crowded 146 English prisoners into the black hole of Calcutta, from which only 23 emerged alive the next morning. A year later, Robert Clive defeated the Bengal forces at Plassey with the loss of only 22 British killed and thereupon declared his company the owner of the richest province in India. He added further territory by forging and violating treaties by playing one native prince against another, 
and by generous bribes given and received. Four million dollars was sent down to the river to Calcutta in one shipment. He accepted presents amounting to one million one hundred and seventy thousands from Hindu rulers dependent upon his favor and his guns. Pocketed from them, in addition, an annual tribute of hundred and forty thousand dollars. Took to opium, was investigated and exonerated by Parliament and killed himself. When I think, he said, of the marvelous riches of that country and the comparatively small part which I took away, I am astonished at my own moderation. Such were the morals of the men who proposed to bring civilization to India.